0: Thank you, worship team, for leading us so beautifully in worshiping our Lord today. It was obvious to me the Lord was inhabiting the praises of his people, and I pray now that he speaks through his word. I want to say welcome to you and to the online audience. And you're a great church family, and I love you. I love being part of this group. You're an amazing group praise the Lord for you. And I look forward to hearing from the Lord this morning as much as you. You know, Brian, uh, the previous preacher, he's a friend of mine. He did such a great job of preaching on Jonah 1 and 2, and I was a little nervous following him. But you know what? He's a good brother, and he's even praying for me now. He's an inspiration to me to all of us budding preachers, really, because he's so passionate about the truth that he preaches. It's gripped his own life, and it's obvious. And he, he just preaches so naturally. I felt like I was in a smorgasbord and got a whole load of good spiritual food. So a summary is in order. You know, in this Jonah story, what's happened so far? Well, you know Jonah in the first chapter, he went AWOL. He ran away from the task instead of obediently embracing what God wanted for him and for the city of Nineveh. There seemed to be a recurring theme in what Brian preached in chapters 1 and 2, and he said that we have issues with God, not because of who he is, but what we feel he has allowed to happen to us. And Jonah, feeling that God had let something happen to him that he didn't like, fled, but what God provided for Jonah was an interesting way to get him back on track. <laughs> and it was a way to reverse course and get back on the track toward the mission at hand that that was to warn Nineveh. You know, the time inside the belly of the fish was a time, I think, of, of dying to himself and his own selfish interests and his own self-pursuits. And it was a time of refocusing on God who commissioned him. And that, that's what happened in the belly of the fish when he prayed in chapter 2. Jonah saw God as God really is, and he saw himself as who he really was, too. And he prayed this beautiful composite of the Psalms that he had learned as a kid, and he said things like this, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. With a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good, You know, I find it interesting that that Jonah honestly spilled his guts while in the guts of a fish. (laughs) Like, I've cleaned my share of fish in my lifetime, (laughs) and the innards of a fish aren't exactly an inspiration for a psalm of prayer, prayer. but there you go, it worked for him. (laughs) So he got spit out on the beach, and he makes his way to Nineveh, and there's no indication how much time passed between that time he got spit up and the time he actually made it to Nineveh. But it's safe to assume that Jonah had time to think about the message that he was going to give to the Ninevites. Jonah had cause to be repulsed by that people because of their violent treatment of Israel in times past. Let's uh, read the story here in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, to the message I give to you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered him with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented It did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Hallelujah. What an act of mercy. We can assume that Jonah went through a change of heart while he was in the belly of the fish for those three days. In a word, he repented from his flight from the mission, and he set his heart on doing what God had originally asked of him. Any minister of God's word needs to have experienced this mercy in some profound way, before they go and share that verbal message. In fact, any power and authority behind the message would only be as deep as the mercy experienced by the messenger. Grace begets grace. Jonah wanted to receive God's grace without being changed by it, and at the same time to keep it away from those who are in fact changed by it. If we're profoundly impacted by the word of the Lord in our own life, we will speak of its transforming ability with power to others. If we are going to proclaim the God, to be God's voice in any capacity, be it prophecy, teaching the Bible, sharing your faith in evangelism, or even a word of testimony, or even interpreting tongues, if you're going to do those kinds of things, then we have to be open to the possibility of God making us practice what we preach. So it was with Jonah. Because of God's mercy, he made a 180, where he reversed course back toward God first. And God is not willing that anyone would perish. And that's why he went to great lengths with Jonah to get the message to the city of Nineveh. God seemed to already have been at work among the people there, preparing them to turn from the evils of violence, suppression and other injustices. <clears throat> Some biblical commentators <clears throat> sorry, reveal that there was in Nineveh a succession of natural disasters, economic co- collapse, disease, famine, and threats from other nations. But despite all those factors that seemingly made the Ninevites ready to hear Jonah, their main need was spiritual. It, they needed conviction in order to turn from violence <clears throat> and injustice to a just God. You know, we've seen throughout the book that Jonah <clears throat> shows a readiness to receive blessing himself and yet a stubborn reluctance to see his enemies receive the same. He didn't have the attitude that he would pass on any of that mercy that he got from God. The Jonah story is, is one of contrast with God's consistent mercy and grace pitted against the fickle flight of Jonah. Jonah seems to want a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad guys like those Ninevites over there, and the one who blesses good guys like him. When the real God keeps showing up, Jonah gets either angry or he becomes in in despair. He can't figure out, how can God be forgiving to those people? And here's the outline of the story, the progression of events. It's orderly, but you know what? Each of these steps in the sequence of the story, had significant results. The first step was God's word came to Jonah a second time. I like that phrase, second time. (laughs) The fact that the Lord spoke again to Jonah reveals a couple of things. First of all, the command shows that God's continued love and concern was for the people of Nineveh. He loved them enough to, to get this chosen prophet with a message to them a second time. The order shows God's mercy to Jonah also. In view of the prayer by Jonah in chapter 2, Jonah's ready now to meet the expectation originally laid out by God. God is the God of second, third, fourth, and many other chances. I know that from my own life. I've asked God for another chance to get right something that I've messed up. And praise God, he's shown me mercy to be able to do that. How many times has he generously given second, third, and many other chances, so many times. The journey from self-righteousness and self-righteous pride back to God is often a long and slow one. God intends, though, to bring life out of death. We may think of this as the principle behind all evangelism. We would even call it the Jonah principle, as Jesus seems to have done. It's out of Christ's sacrifice, out of his weakness, that the sufficiency of his saving power will be born. So fruitful evangelism is a result of this death-producing principle. It's when we come to share spiritually and on occasions physically in Christ's death that his power is demonstrated in our weakness and others are drawn to him. And that was what was happening to Jonah. The second step was a message to be conveyed. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. You know, Jonah did not become free to select for himself what he would say to the people. He didn't go to them and tell them about his experiences. He did not decide the content of his preaching. His prophetic words were fast bound to the word of God. The greatest saint or prophet can say nothing of value unless it is based solely on God's word. The message to be given, as we will see, was was simple enough, but it was an expression of the wrath of God and looming judgment. Prophets like Jonah, in this case, were committed to preaching the word of God fearlessly with the hope of life transformation. I am a preacher just like that. I would love to see us all change powerfully today. God, let it happen. Their social justice would result in the lives of people. That's why he preached. As, he de- as described in those blistering words in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because of our longing for sin, I believe that God lets us have what we want. In the case of the Ninevites, the violence, the social oppression, and evil that existed in Nineveh is well chronicled by historians. The societal breakdown was actually the outworking of God's wrath, not the consequence of it. God created the world in such a way so that cruelty, greed, and exploitation have natural disintegrative consequences. They're a manifestation of his anger toward evil. It's like a loving father, though, who doesn't want his kid to self-destruct. God calls the Ninevites through Jonah away from that evil, toward him, working against social injustice and to call people to repentance before God. Those things go together. In the next step of the story, Jonah obeys and goes, actually, God taught Jonah that his will cannot be ignored and it is motivated always by the powerful force of love. God is a God of compassion and his will for the Ninevites included forgiveness and rescue. The mission needed Jonah and the message God gave him for Nineveh. The Nineveh Nineveh that Jonah hated. So Jonah goes obediently he had courage to do so because the, the city's government could have easily killed him. The next step was the word of warning. His message was simply, in 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know the exact content of Jonah's message. It's not given in, in the book. But unlike the other minor prophets whose books were about detailed warnings to Israel... Jonah's message to the Ninevites was simply the prospect of coming judgment. What a simple message. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. It was a a probationary period for them to respond. But the response took less. It took only three days for Jonah to be in the city. And everyone heard. And it went from the general population right up to the king and then back down again. And this, without social media. (laughs) There must have been a good number of gossips in that town. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite amazing that it spread that fast. Jonah's message was simple and direct. Although that one sentence was probably not everything he said, it was the main thrust of his message. The next step was the response of the pagans. And I hope you don't bristle at that word. I use that word, pagan, not as a pejorative way, but to denote a religious group that normally has a pantheon of gods and not a group like the Jews who were monotheistic. The response of the people of Nineveh is quite amazing. It was swift and sorry, sincere. <laughs> it was swift and sincere. It swept the city from bottom to top and back, like I said, Their response of repentance followed a typical pattern in the Old Testament in which a threat of harm is followed by repentance and then a decision by God not to bring on the harm after all. God previously said through Jeremiah that if a nation he warned repented, he himself would relent and not go through with the planned harm. The word to repent means a couple of things. It means to feel sorrow and at the same time, To have a volitional commitment not to repeat the same offenses or go down the same road of destruction. Here was the Assyrian king in sackcloth and ashes. It seems fictional, but timing's everything. Jonah got there just right time. A disaster could have been on the way, or an invasion, or any number of things. Jonah's arrival at just the right time brought brought about a response that would avoid the disaster. And when it says that the people of Nineveh believed God, it meant that they acknowledged Jonah was a prophet and they accepted as true what he preached. They didn't enter into any kind of covenant relationship with God. There's no mention of the residents of Nineveh ever forsaking their gods or idols. But it's Every commentary about the book that I read agreed that Jonah did not successfully convert the city or people. The message called them to forsake their evil way and violence they planned toward others. In verse 8, violence was the arbitrary infringement of human rights, of which Nineveh was blatantly guilty. They did, however, forsake their evil and look to God for deliverance. This call to repent of oppression and injustice fits the message of other Bible prophets in the times they spoke to polytheistic nations, for example, Amos. The Assyrian Empire was unusually violent. It slaughtered and enslaved countless people and oppressed the poor. Now, I remember uh, getting a newsletter from Katrina. That's her pseudonym to protect her ID. In what is present-day Nineveh, She wrote, that kind of violence is still occurring today in modern Iraq. People are being killed in front of their families, women raped. As I visited with a friend this week, she shared the fear, the betrayal, and anger she was feeling due to some recent events that have stirred up the emotions stemming from the genocide. There was a recent genocide where the Yazidi people were slaughtered by the general population in Iraq. The response of the pagan leaders. The king and his nobles followed the example of the population who heard it first. Even the animals fasted, and no one drank water. The fasting and uncomfortable dress, which is sackcloth, kind of like burlap, It represented self-denial. By making oneself physically miserable, they sought to show genuineness. There was a willingness to show short-term discomfort in anticipation of long-term reform from evil practices. As previously mentioned, historians have pointed out that about the time of Jonah's mission in Assyria, they had experienced a series of famines and plagues and revolts and even eclipses. All of which in their worldview were seen as omens of far things worse to come. <clears throat> was this God's way of setting them up for the message of Prophet Jonah? Possibly. While such a movement toward God always has social aspects, though, such factors cannot wholly explain or account for that kind of response. There was always a conviction from the Spirit of God that prepares a people to hear what God is saying. As Jacques Ellul, a famous uh, sociologist, pointed out, Nineveh, with its holy, warlike orientation, accuses itself of violence. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence, says the king. Nineveh, proud of its power and invincibility, ceases to be itself when it when it humbles itself. I want to tell you a story about a a revival in Pyongyang, what is present-day North Korea. But back in 1907, it was just one country. And there was a revival at a Bible conference in Pyongyang. Those attending the conference came under deep conviction of sin, especially when a preacher called them to repent of their traditional hatred of the Japanese. Of course, Korean Christians had accepted the fundamental truths about the, the Bible especially uh, their, their idea of salvation. And yet, that grace hadn't sunk down into their heart deeply enough for them to forgive the Japanese. They felt morally superior to a nation they saw as oppressive and cruel. In light of the gospel, however, the Koreans at the conference saw that they stood before God as equally sinful, and condemned with all other human beings. Yet rescued by the sheer and costly grace of Jesus Christ. And in the light of that grace, it drained away their pride and bitterness. They returned to their homes with a new willingness to repent of wrongdoing. And people went from house to house repairing relationships, returning sto- stolen articles. And their worship services were filled with a new power. The result was the explosive growth of the Korean church. Even today, there are many megachurches in Korea filled with praising Koreans. And I see that as the starting point of a revival. The next step was how the pagans' response was better than Jonah's. Verses 7 to 9, we see the Holy Spirit wonderfully at work here. The king is making this decree. He says, let everybody give up their evil ways. Who knows, God may relent. Because the message was so general from Jonah's part, it it makes me think that the Holy Spirit spoke through the king. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit took that and helped the Ninevites abandon their evil practices. There is more than an inclination to repent when the Spirit speaks the details of our individual sin, than when some person tries to tell us what's wrong with us. Maybe the practical application here is for us, let the Holy Spirit do the talking. The answer to the question in verse 9, who knows, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That question can only be answered by God. Jonah's message had a great response, even though Jonah didn't think it was so wonderful as I think next week's message is going to reveal. So stay tuned for chapter four. And then the eighth step God's response to their response. The Hebrew word for repent occurs four times in verses eight to ten here. That's what's striking about that section. Repentance is always a work of God. God responded with mercy. When God saw what they did and how they turned, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. What amazing grace! It's got to be revival when a government leader gets up and makes that kind of decree. (laughs) May it happen in Canada. May it happen in every country in the world. It can. We're praying so. What are the applications for this today? For us here at Seven Oaks. There's a number of them. I'd like to go through them. But before I go through them, I just want to give two precautions. Don't ignore the voice of conviction of God on your own sin. Otherwise you won't be able to hear him speaking in other ways and secondly don't ignore the voice of the holy spirit calling you on mission otherwise you'll be missing the joy of serving him and i'm praying today that there'll be even some young people that will s- respond be called by god like jonah was be given a mission be given his his resources And see a change in a country like this. The first lesson here is about mission. Let's not let bias ruin a good opportunity to share our faith with others. Let's move, as Jesus encouraged in the message part of the New Testament, let's move in the unforced rhythms of grace, where we're compelled and not coerced into something. We may not be called to be prophets or apostles, which are sent ones, or evangelists, but we are called to go. And that means being willing to leave some security and safety and share the good news with others, like Katrina in Iraq. God never calls us in to bless us without also sending us out to be a blessing to others. What does that mean? You know, a man I recently Met had shared with me how he was trying to talk about his faith in his neighborhood, but to little avail. But then some major difficulties came into that guy's life. Health challenges, losing a job, having trouble with wayward kids. And he began to tell his neighbors about how Jesus was helping him face those kind of things. Well, they were quite interested in that. They were moved by it. It was the Jonah principle. As we experience weakness, we are brought low. Christ's power is more evident in us. There's also a lesson here about ethnocentrism. That's a big fancy word for thinking that your race is the best of all. Unless we can see our own sin and see ourselves living entirely on the mercy of God we will never see how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful. Is there a people group that we hate? Is our ethnocentrism painting God and separating us from Punjabis, First Nations, and any others? To make your own ethnicity more important than God is, by definition, to make it an idol. God is patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish but for all to come to repentance. There's also a lesson here about cities. Jonah was an urban missionary, and he he went to one of the world's largest cities at the time. God's final question to Jonah and to us is this, should I not be concerned about fill in the blank, that great city? In modern times, There are huge migrations of people to cities. In just 20 years, most of the world's cities have grown from hundreds of thousands of people to several millions. And continents like South America and Asia have gone from being 40% urbanized to 80% urbanized. This begs the question, where are we allocating our church resources in reaching the unreached? Our family of churches, the Alliance, makes those urban centers a priority with personnel and material resources to evangelize going to places like Kinshasa, Mexico, Bangkok, Buenos Aires, and many other cities of populations of 10 million and more. Cities are challenging places to live. It's a scary place. There's darkness. There's moral darkness. There's violence. But we need people who represent Jesus in them. I admire Pastors Keller, Timothy Keller, who went to New York from uh, a rural place in America, and he started a church there. I admire pastors like Ken Shigamatsu, our Alliance-owned 10th Avenue Alliance pastor in Vancouver. They're having tremendous outreaches in these cities. And finally, there's a lesson here about justice. The brutal society of Nineveh promised to turn away from its violence, and they did, at least for a season. Martin Luther King has said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Every generation has seen its share of injustice. What the Bible means when it calls us to seek justice and defend the oppressed is this. It means, first of all, seeking equal treatment for both foreigners, and native-born. It also means having a special concern for the economically and socially vulnerable groups. Proverbs tells us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, and to speak up for the rights of all who are destitute, and to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. It finally means a broad-based radical generosity, The Old Testament prophets often lump together, loosing chains of injustice with sharing food with the hungry and housing them. So a practical application might be for us here to include in our charitable giving designations of the Community Care Committee and organizations like International Justice Mission, which works around the globe in fighting anti-trafficking, anti-human trafficking. It fights anti-traffic, fights trafficking, I should say. It doesn't fight (laughs) anti-trafficking. That doesn't sound right. (laughs) But it fights human trafficking in a beautiful way and has seen many people released from the abuse and that oppression. You know what, to do this kind of stuff, who do we need? Who do we need in our corner? We need the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. That was a beautiful song that you sang just before this message, Brenda. It was the Holy Spirit orchestrated that one. (laughs) And it's just, we, come Holy Spirit, we need your help. (laughs) Let's pray to him. Come Holy Spirit. These are huge mountains, it seems. But we want to be involved in that. We want to turn from our own wicked ways first and then speak of your ability to do that for us to others. We need your gifting. Help us raise up some prophets among us that can speak against injustice. Raise up some missionaries among us who can go to places, the cities that are full of violence and speak against it. Lord, do this again. It's your work. We submit ourselves humbly to you. Please send us. Please use us in a way where our character, our ministry reflects that of the love of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.